Well, I've, I've uh, began a series of messages two weeks ago um, that, that uh, began to deal with things that Jesus taught us or told us to pray. And I began in Luke chapter 10, and we're, today, this morning, we're going to go to Luke chapter 11. And um, Jesus, in Luke chapter 10, we talked about praying for laborers in the kingdom. Um, God is, God is moving in our land, and God's people need to move with him. The harvest is ripe. Uh, we are ripe. It is ripe unto harvest. And Jesus never condemned the harvest for what was going on in the world. He prayed for laborers that would go out into the harvest field. And he asked us to pray for laborers that would go out into the harvest field. And so that was the beginning. What did Jesus ask us to pray? Pray for laborers. Amen? And so if we look around and say, wow, there's not many working in the kingdom, uh, maybe we need to listen to what Jesus uh, said, and that's that we need to pray for laborers. Hallelujah. And so we're believing God for laborers to be raised up. And so this morning, we're going to go to Luke chapter 11. And I'm going to uh, talk about the first part of the, the, what we have come to call the Lord's Prayer. And so I want to start in verse 1, and let's read it together. Now it came to pass, as Jesus was praying in a certain place, when he ceased that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and do not lead us into temptation but deliver us from the evil one thank you lord now i in in uh, my study of the scriptures i prefer um, the prayer that's in John 17 as the Lord's Prayer. I call that one the Lord's Prayer. But historically, this, has, this prayer, and it also is in, in the book of Matthew, has been uh, called the Lord's Prayer. In fact, Matthew, Matthew's version of it extends uh, a little bit longer and says, for yours is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever and ever. Amen. Praise God. And and so it is uh, listed in, in both of those Gospels what has been uh, called the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus is responding here to the disciples' sincere question of asking, teach us to pray. And so Jesus, in fact, in verse 1, this isn't going to be the, the focus of my message this morning, but in verse 1, we see 
a glimpse into the prayer life, the prayer habit of Jesus. Uh, we see here that he was praying in a certain place. Everybody say certain place. And so this was an intentional place that Jesus went to. We know that he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before uh, he was crucified, and he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. But that garden, when he was in Jerusalem, was a place he often visited and met with God. For Jesus, it was a certain place. We know that, that the book of Luke, in fact, Luke chronicles it more than any other gospel, that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places, or he came away from the crowd, or he brought his disciples to the place of prayer to seek the Father. And so Jesus had a certain place that he prayed in, Ver I, I, I think various certain places. And the disciples, I think, saw more into his relationship with the Father in those moments than at any other time of his ministry. They saw Jesus relating to the Father in a very intimate, personal way, and it stirred something in them that said, uh, Jesus, we want you to teach us how to pray. And I thank God for this this morning because each of us are at a different place in our walk with God. You might be young in your relationship with Jesus. You might just be beginning, really, in walking with him. Or you might be in a place where you've been walking with him for a long time. I thank God that he doesn't leave us without tools to learn how to pray. Amen? And so uh, what the disciples saw in the prayer life of Jesus, they, they asked him, and Jesus said, I'm going to... I'm going to tell you the secret. I'm going to tell you the secret. Now, um, there have been some powerful moments in my life where we have corporately said the Lord's Prayer together, and it's a powerful expression when we repeat the Lord's Prayer together. And Jesus did say, when you pray, say this. And so, and so uh, I'm, I'm not at all opposed to reciting the Lord's Prayer. I think it's a powerful thing, and it can be personally beneficial for you to simply recite the Lord's Prayer and for us to recite the Lord's Prayer together. In fact, there are some, uh, there are some faiths that uh, share the Lord's Prayer every single time they gather. And I don't necessarily think that that is a wrong uh, way to approach it, but I also don't think that God gave us this prayer merely to repeat. He didn't give it to us merely to use like a magical formula. Like if we just say this prayer, that that is in itself enough. Just saying words. Because to a lot of people, uh, the meaning and the impact of what Jesus was really trying to say is lost in the mere religiousness of reciting it. Are you with me? Do you understand what I'm trying to say? And so these kinds of things are not given to us just so that we can repeat them. When the kids get in trouble in the, in the school, in the Reformed school, that they have to write out 30 Our Fathers. 
And like that will, that'll teach you. It's a form of punishment then to pray. That's not what uh, God intended. And so uh, Jesus is teaching us some very powerful principles in how to pray. Now, uh, so I want to break this down for you this morning. And I, and I just, I, I want to foundationally look at the Lord's Prayer and have it edify us and change the way that we relate with God. Because I believe Jesus was saying, if you want your relationship with the Father to change, then you need to incorporate these things into your life. I have, and I'm imparting them into your life. Praise God. And so the very first phrase, that the first two words in the Lord's Prayer that he uses are radical and they are real. And, and uh, it is these two words, our Father. <laughs> now, you and I hear this from the perspective of hindsight. We're looking back. This is the way that we have prayed our whole life. We have, we have said, dear Father. We have called God Father. We start uh, prayers by saying, Father God. Or we address the Lord as Father as believers. We've done it for most of our lives. And perhaps if you were raised in a Christian home, it is not unfamiliar to you to start a prayer with the word Father. But you need to go back 2,000 years into the religious charged atmosphere that Jesus was in. And the, the religious leaders would never, ever, ever call God Father. They would not do that. And so for Jesus to tell this to the disciples, when you begin the prayer, begin like this, our Father. This was a radical, radical moment in the teaching of Jesus. This was an incredible place of, of, of God saying, saying, I want to be your father. Can you imagine them never having addressed God before as father, hearing this for the first time from Jesus? When you address God, you want to learn how to pray? Then you learn to address God like this. Father. Abba. Woo. You need to learn to express your relationship with him as a father. You want to know how radical of a concept this was? This was the one thing that the Jews nailed him on in condemning him to the cross. You call God your father. In John chapter 5, we read this. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making him equal with God. They wanted to kill him for this. This was blasphemy. And yet Jesus, the very reason Jesus came was to reveal the father through him to us. Hallelujah. Oh, glory to God. 
God, and, and so there's a lot of, th- there's so much wrapped up in this. God wants to be your father. And for some of you, if you were raised in a difficult situation at home, this does not necessarily evoke good feelings. But God is not like your earthly dad. I am a dad, and I am filled with problems, and I am filled with issues. I have failed again and again and again and again and again and again. And I, I am, I'm, I've failed, and I'm a Christian father. And so people that are not walking with Christ, they are going to fail. God is not a reflection of failure. God is a perfect father. He's a perfect father and his heart is for you. And he wants to be a part of your life. Hallelujah. Oh, and so... And so there are people, in fact, in fact, uh, um, often times in my ministry to people, what I find out is this, that I have a hard time relating with God as a father because I had a hard time with what happened in my home. But Jesus came to heal all of that. Hallelujah. He came to heal all of that and wash all of that and cleanse all of that. I want to thank Jesus for his precious blood that takes every wound and every difficult place and heals it in the name of Jesus when I come to the cross. Oh, praise God. Oh, praise God. And we address God as our Father. In fact, in the book of John, when he came out of the tomb and he, and he uh, met Mary uh, Magdalene, and uh, the other Mary, and he came, uh, he came to them and he said, go and tell the disciples, I'm going to my father and to your father. And I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see my father and I'm going to see your father. Hallelujah. And he opened up the way for you to know God as your father. Oh, thank you, Jesus. And did, did you know that knowing God as your father, knowing God as your father is, is one sign that you are truly born again, that you've got the real deal. You know you've got the real deal because your heart begins to relate with God as Abba, Father. And let me read from Romans chapter 8. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Oh, praise God. Oh, praise God. We cry out, Abba, Father. Because Galatians chapter 4 says something very similar. Verse 6, and because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Praise the Lord. This is the beginning of prayer. This is the beginning of effective prayer according to Jesus, he taught us to pray, Father. Can you just do that for a moment in your relationship with the Lord? Can you just cry out, just close your eyes right now, whether you whisper it or just communicate that internally or whether you breathe that out as a prayer. Just right now, just say, God, you are my Father. You are Abba. You are Dad, you are my God. 
I thank you that you are my father. Hallelujah. And then the next two words that Jesus uses, our father in heaven, in heaven. And as I was meditating on this, I felt the Lord speak to me that we cannot forget God's place. God's place. God is on the throne. Amen? The Father is on the throne. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Ephesians chapter 1. We're seated with Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2. God, the Father, is on the throne. Hallelujah. Forever lifted high. And we cannot forget his place. The nations are in uproar right now. I I don't know if you can feel it. If you're plugged in at all, the nations are in uproar. Last night, this nation was in uproar. There's a clashing that's happening. And most of the leaders of the free world, the Western world, called President Biden, consoling him on the loss of the Supreme Court. The nations are in uproar. I read an article. This this leader after leader after leader, I should have brought it. Leader after leader after leader apologizing for America. The nations are in uproar. But God is on the throne. And I want to declare this morning, not just to our nation, but to me as an individual, and to you as an individual, that God is still God. Hallelujah. And I am not. And that's important to remember. God is God, and I am not. Just let's declare that together. God is God, and I am not. Oh, hallelujah. That'll set you free. That'll take some burden off of your shoulders. You're carrying false responsibility. Give it to him. His shoulders are a lot bigger than yours. He's God. You're not God. He's the one that's carrying the the burden of responsibility. And along with that, I believe that, that the balance of calling God our Father is that we remember that He is to be feared. Amen? That we don't personalize God so much that he loses holiness in our own view, that he loses magnificence and sovereignty in our own perspective. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallelujah. In Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is a strange book, but Solomon got it right here when he said in chapter 5, Walk prudently when you go to the house of God. Draw near to hear, rather than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they do evil. 
Do not be rash with your mouth. And let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. So, uh, I've had a lot of conversations with pastors that I respect that have been walking with Jesus a lot more than I have and are a lot more effective than I am in ministry. And when we have conversations, do you know who, who does the talking? Not me. Do you know what I do? I listen. Because that person knows more than me. That person's done more than me. That person has more experience than me. When we recognize God is in heaven, we recognize he's to be feared, guess what we do? That part of our prayer time needs to be listening to what God is saying. Can I remind us? He knows more than you. He knows more than you. He knows more than me. I want to listen to what he has to say about my situation. Amen? I want him to be the leader, and I want me to be the follower. Thank you, Jesus. The longer I live, the less my opinions matter. The opinions of men do not matter. If you want to get a if you want to get a beat on what America thinks, then you just call a thousand people and you say, well, the poll is plus or minus three points, and this is what America thinks. But the longer I live, the less what I think matters. It does not matter what I think. And frankly, it does not matter what you think. It matters what he thinks. Amen? And I want, and this is, this is not always easy. There's a struggle here. Uh, I, I get that. But I want what I want to line up more and more and more with what he wants. I want what I think to line up more and more and more with what he thinks. Hallelujah. And that, friends, is wisdom. Let me read to you from the book of Proverbs some benefits of those that fear God. The fear of the Lord. Okay, you can write these down and you can visit them later. Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the begin beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 2 uh, verse 1. Uh, my son... If you receive my words and treasure my commands within you, so that you incline your ear to wisdom, apply your heart to understanding. If you cry out for discernment, lift up your voice for understanding. Seek her as silver. Search for her as hidden treasures. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Proverbs 8:13 The fear of the Lord is to hate evil pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate I'm going to read that one one more time this is the word of the Lord 
The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Here's some promises from the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 10, 27. The fear of the Lord prolongs days, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. Promise. Proverbs 14, 26. In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence. That's a powerful blessing, isn't it? You fear God, it increases confidence in you. Because Why? Because you're not trusting in yourself now. Now you're trusting in the Lord. Hallelujah. And he changes your countenance and, and how you live. And how, how, when, when, when I do something just because I have a good idea, do you think my confidence level is very high? That's going to be totally dependent upon personality. Some of you will have, you know, a human sense of confidence in, a, in an idea that you presented. Some of you will go, well, I don't know if this is going to work or not. But when I know God has spoken for me to do this, oh, when I, when I have the assurance that this is coming from him, do you think my confidence level goes up or down? I'm telling you, every time it goes up, because I know I'm walking in the will of God, and God is going to come through. Hallelujah. God is going to do it, and God is going to get the glory for, for it when it happens. Hallelujah. Confidence goes up. This is good stuff. Proverbs 14, 27 says, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. And the enemy's the one that sets snares, traps. He sets traps to get people to fall into them, and they look so good, but they bite so hard. And I uh, see you shaking your head. You have been there. You have fallen into a trap or two that the enemy has set, and it has, it has sprung on you, and you know that, that uh, the enemy comes to steal and to kill and destroy. But when we fear God, there is a fountain of life. And Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and life more abundantly. Proverbs 15, 16. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with trouble. Proverbs 19.23 The fear of the Lord leads to life, and he who has it will abide in satisfaction. Friends, this is what even the world is after. They want satisfaction. They run here and they run there. Where do you find satisfaction? It begins in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Proverbs 22.4 By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. Hallelujah. Proverbs 23.17 and 18 Do not let your heart envy sinners but be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the day. For surely there is a hereafter, and your hope will not be cut off. 
When the enemy can convince people that this life is all there is, then the fear of the Lord gets thrown out the window. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But Solomon ties the fear of the Lord with knowing there is a hereafter. And if you fear him, you will not be cut off. Isn't that our hope? Praise the Lord. If in this life all that, all that we have is this, then Paul said, we of all people are most miserable. Why? Because we deny ourselves. Think about Paul's life. He denied himself, fasting all the time, praying all the time, getting rocks thrown at him all the time, getting run out of town, getting whipped, getting stoned. And if there is no hereafter, why is he doing all of this? Why do we give up all of this time? Why do we do all of this? But, but we know this, friends. There is a day that is coming. There is a day of reckoning that is coming. And because that day is coming, we've got our eyes set on it. Because we fear God, when we stand before him, hallelujah, we want to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come into the rest of my father. Hallelujah. Fear the Lord. Our Father, who is in heaven, he's in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. It's no coincidence that the names of God are also the world's curse words. Right? We hollow his name. To hollow is a deep reverential worship. setting aside the name of God, the Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, your name is hallowed. I could spend the next four weeks talking about the names of God that we should hollow. When we worship, it opens up the door for God to work. There's a reason why Jesus put this part in right at the beginning. Hallowed be your name. Worship opens up the door for us to come into the presence of God and experience Him. Hallelujah. Worship positions us in the throne room so that the rest of intercession can happen. 
Worship takes us past the outer court and into the inner court, fully aware of his presence, hallelujah, when we're worshiping, when we hollow his name. Praise the Lord. Hallowed be your name. Worship opens up the door to the presence of God. There is a reason why we worship together. Hallelujah. There is a reason why God wants you to worship when you're by yourself. There is a reason why we take moments. Now, I, I believe that we live a lifestyle of worship so that everything I do is an offering of worship unto the Lord. I, go, I, I am faithful to my boss. Why? Because I want to represent Christ, and I, and I want the Lord to be honored with my life. You know what that is? That's worship. I, I want uh, I, I want every, uh, the way that I, I treat my family, I want that to be as unto the Lord, a worship unto God, my spouse, my children. I want that to be a worship unto the Lord. And so my lifestyle is a worship unto the Lord. How I, how I uh, uh, spend my money, I want that to be pleasing to God. Amen. I want uh, how I eat to be pleasing to the Lord. Praise God. I want every area of my life to be a worship unto Him. But there also needs to be moments where I'm, I'm just not saying, well, my life is worship. No, there needs to be moments where I hit the pause button and say, it's not just all the activity of my life that is a worship to the Lord, but I am taking this moment right now to hollow the name of God and to worship him. Hallelujah. And when I do that, I am pressing past the outer court. I am pressing into the inner court, into where God is as he opens up the way. Hallelujah. And I am coming in to fellowship and relationship with him. Glory to God. Glory to God. Glory to God. Worship changes things. His presence changes things. When I get into his presence, my perspective shifts. Hallelujah. When I get into his presence, when I begin to worship God, no matter how I feel, oh, my feelings become secondary and he becomes primary. Hallelujah. Oh, my viewpoint begins to shift. Oh, glory to God. Glory to God. There was a man of God under David whose, whose name was Asaph. And the worship environment under David was like no other. Oh, read about it in 1 Chronicles chapter 25. But uh, Asaph wrote a psalm that I want us to turn to right now because this is so good. Psalms, psalm chapter 73. I want you to see the worship, what, what happens when we worship. And so Psalm 73 verse 1 says this. Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked... course none of us have ever been there before and then he goes on to give his complaint his description why he almost stumbled there are no pangs in their death their strength is firm 
They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than the heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore his people return here, and waters, a full cup, are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And there, and is, and is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly, who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. What we're talking about here is the, is the seeming blessing that is on the house of the wicked. People that do not know God. And many times, friends, we can look at people in the world and we can say, I don't need Jesus to be wealthy. Look, this person's wealthy and they don't have Jesus. I want to be like that. Uh, you can look at success. People that are successful in the world. And you can say, well, they don't have Jesus. And your heart can get envious and jealous of, of things that, that God never intended for us to get jealous over. Why does it seem I'm always sick? My neighbor's never sick and he doesn't even pray. They always seem happy and confident and cheerful. And I'm not that way. And so Asaph, in a moment of incredible honesty, said my feet had almost stumbled. This was the way I was thinking. And really what he's saying is, God, you're not faithful to your word. You said that the righteous would, would, uh, would prosper and that the wicked would perish. And I see the opposite happening. And he was slipping. Almost. But then read verse 17. Until. <laughs> Isn't that a great word? Until. Until what? Until I went in to the sanctuary of God. I went into the sanctuary of God. And when I went into the sanctuary of God, my perspective changed. When I went into the sanctuary of God, my feet that were slipping were suddenly placed upon a rock. When I went into the sanctuary of God, 
my eyes that were misinterpreting what I was seeing started to see the way God wanted me to see. When I went into the sanctuary of God, hallelujah, things began to change. When I went into the sanctuary of God, I understood what I didn't understand before. I understood that though the righteous look like they are blessed, they are to be pitied more than any other. The wicked, rather, they are to be pitied more than any other. Because the blessing that they are seemingly walking in is a false blessing. It's a mask. It is a cover-up. It is something that blinds their hearts. They don't see the end from the beginning. They only see today. But when I'm in the presence of God, I see the end. And it changes everything. When I go into the sanctuary. Some of us have a despairing perspective of our personal economy because of what's happening in the economy of the nation. We need to get into the presence of God so that we begin to see clearly that this economy never was our provider. Hallelujah. When I get into the presence of God, I realize he's my provider. I realize, oh, he's, he's the one that's going to take care of me. It is not my job. It is not my education. It is not my boss. It is not my family. It is not any of these things that is going to provide for me. Je Jehovah Jireh is going to provide for me. And when I get into his presence, my viewpoint shifts. Hallelujah. I begin to hallow the name of God. I begin to lift up my hands and I begin to worship. And I begin to submit my, my own perspectives to him. And I begin to see like he wants me to see. Oh my God. Oh my God. Could it be, friends, that our problems, that many of the problems that we carry day after day after day after day after day is because we are not finding our way into the sanctuary. This, then, is how you should pray. Hollow. Hollow it be your name. Jesus. 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 This is stuff that God is giving to us. I've got about six more pages of stuff. I'm going to stop right there this morning. Because God wants to transform your prayer life. He wants to transform your time with him. He wants to transform how you connect with him and relate with him. And Jesus taught us how to pray. Doesn't matter how old you are. If you're young, you young, young people in here, under 30, Jesus taught you how to hollow the name of God. He taught you how to fear the Lord. He taught you that he is your Father. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord.